his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. This week marks a year since COVID arrived here in New York in a very big way. We have a case in Westchester, a 50-year-old gentleman who uh, did not travel to any of the places that are on the quote-unquote watch list. I view myself in some way as the canary in the coal mine. COVID was here. We just didn't realize it. This week on 880 In-Depth, you'll hear from the man whose illness shook us all awake to COVID-19 a year ago. I'm thankful for family and friends. Um, Just feeling very lucky. And we'll hear from a world-renowned epidemiologist who, because of what we don't know about the new COVID variants, is warning this is a very fragile time. I know that everybody's fatigued and tired, but I urge everyone to please just hold on until we get to a safe, until, until we get to safety. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and we have some strong reporting to deliver this week. We'll talk to an expert on variants a bit later, Dr. Wafa El Sadr from Columbia University, and she has some great information for us. We'll also hear from the Westchester County Executive, George Latimer, who takes a personal look back on the year of COVID. You can hear that it's highly contagious and it's over in Wuhan, China, or you can see it jump like uh, like a house just getting, you know, burning a flame. You know, you have like a little fire, the next thing you know, the whole house is engaged. But first... A Westchester man in his 50s is the second confirmed case of coronavirus in New York State. The word coming in in just the past 15 minutes. It was a year ago this week that New York saw its very first coronavirus cases, including the very first serious illness. We didn't know his name back then, but we knew he was a 51-year-old lawyer from New Rochelle in Westchester County, and we knew he was very, very ill. Today, Lawrence Garbuz tells our Sean Adams that he's... Thankful to be alive. I'm grateful that everything uh, that has happened in terms of people who have uh, looked after my care and um, have been concerned. Um, I'm thankful for family and friends. Um, Just feeling very lucky. Fair or not, Garbuz's case drew national and even international attention for touching off the very first stories in the U.S. of contact tracing, of quarantining, and demonstrating just how quickly and how far and wide coronavirus can spread within a community. Lawrence Garbuz is lucky to be alive. The 51-year-old loving husband and father of four spent weeks in a medically induced coma on a ventilator. He woke up last March to a whole new world. 
His survival is an amazing story and a tribute to his spirit, his Jewish faith, and his family. This week, he spoke to our Sean Adams about it all, including how being dubbed Patient Zero left a painful stigma for his family to deal with. Oh, yes, it absolutely did. And I think my family, uh, unfortunately, was subject to criticism um, because of that and uh, suggestions that we uh, were a super spreader and that we weren't careful. Um, I think it's because we were careful that we had received the diagnosis as early as we did. I view myself in some way as the canary in the coal mine, uh, and I'm told that lots of lives were saved because COVID was here. We just didn't realize it, um, and we couldn't appreciate um, the fact that um, this virus, which was in our minds thousands of miles away, was here in New York City. Um, and uh, if the diagnosis allowed government and uh, medical providers to spring into action um, so that uh, appropriate steps could be taken um, to hopefully stop it, um, then I guess I wasn't so upset that my uh, name was disclosed, even though I think I had every expectation for privacy. But now I'm a private citizen. Um, we're all dealing with the pandemic. We're all dealing with the fact that we want uh, the term COVID-19 to be used only in the past uh, tense. Uh, I want to see um, uh, as many people vaccinated as possible. I want to see um, people um, uh, recovering, and I want to see people who might be uh, infected um, um, uh, taken care of um, and so that we don't have any more unnecessary deaths. 500,000 people is a staggering number of fellow uh, Americans who unfortunately have lost their lives. Um, if government was able to um, move faster by disclosing my name, I was okay with that. Um, but um, as I'd like to say, my 15 minutes of fame um, is over, um, and uh, we should all focus on uh, um, attending to this pandemic um, and so that we could all move forward. Today, Lawrence Garbus is part of multiple research studies to help medical professionals understand the lasting effects of COVID. I'm in every single research study that has been suggested to me. And when I, a funny story uh, is that as soon as I woke up, um, there were uh, some doctors who came uh, to visit with me, and they sort of explained that there was going to be a very small research study, uh, no more than 12 people, and that they immediately needed um, my blood uh, in order to uh, sort of figure out just what COVID's all about. Uh, and I said, absolutely. Um, and But my only condition was that I wanted it to be confidential. I was not looking for any recognition or anything like that. I wanted it to be quiet. Uh, and the irony, of course, was that at that point I had no idea um, that I was unfairly dubbed patient zero, that the whole world uh, seemed to know that I had COVID, uh, that I was uh, on a ventilator, uh, that... Um, and um, that my community was so affected. Um, and here I was asking for confidentiality, and yet everyone seemed to know everything about my uh, 
medical care and diagnosis and treatment. These days, Garbuse and his wife are doing their best to help others who've experienced what their family went through last year. I was aware of a few people who, um, let's call them long haulers, um, and uh, I reached out to them. Um, and it started slowly, and I explained that I was not a um, psychologist or a therapist, and I certainly didn't have any training of any kind, um, and that I was a lawyer, but that um, I was there to listen, uh, and that I could share an experience. Um, and um, unfortunately, many people have had COVID, um, and a lot of people are still suffering, um, and I don't think anybody who has, has had COVID has intentionally tried to infect other people, but there is a stigma that's out there. And I try and listen, uh, and I try and um, um, explain my personal story to the extent it gives them um, um, a, um, an opportunity to, for them to reflect uh, and listen and give my thoughts and um, just to be a friend. Um, and I think a lot of long-term COVID um, patients uh, could use a friend. And, um, and by listening, I was also helping myself as I was dealing with the fact that um, I got COVID very early on uh, and, um, and I had to deal with the, re the realization that uh, for a period of time I had this horrible virus. Um, and then, I, as I say, I'm very thankful that I've uh, um, had a good medical team uh, that they were able to um, get me to the point where I, I had a double negative. After what he went through a year ago, Garbus told our Sean Adams he has a whole new outlook on life, especially work life. Yeah, I'm a lawyer uh, in the city, uh, and I run a trust in the state's practice, which is very heavy in terms of dealing with families. And there's family um, fighting and stress. A lot of those issues um, do. A lot of those issues, do, in fact, um, I'm affected by them, uh, and a lot of the emotional uh, issues uh, are quite bothersome. Um, and I realized that I was uh, taking care of other issues more than taking care of myself, um, and that I really needed to um, slow down. Uh, I was a better attorney when I was uh, relaxed, uh, when I took breaks. Uh, when I appreciated those things that were around me. And when I came home from the rehab after being away for so so long, there was this beautiful tree in my front yard that had just blossomed in these beautiful white flowers. Uh, and I was looking at it and saying, my goodness, I have never noticed this tree before. And it's a tall tree, it's a beautiful tree. And I said, we're just running through life. We're not even appreciating all those things that are around us. And I really thought it was a, a, you know, a wonderful moment to sort of say, look, you know, we've got all these things we need to do. And one of the things that we need to do is we really need to enjoy ourselves. We need to appreciate those things that are around us. And I think the power of positivity is really the, the, the one thing that trumps all um, and sort of permits us to have a more fulfilling life. An important perspective on life, on COVID, from Lawrence Garbuse in conversation with our reporter, Sean Adams. We had a chance to visit with someone else who had a front row seat for the wildfire of COVID in New Rochelle a year ago. Hi, it's Tim. Hey, Tim, George Latimer. How are you? Mr. County Executive, how are you, sir? 
Good to uh, good. I'm here with our George Latimer is the county executive of Westchester, a place where COVID arrived early. We spoke earlier this week. Let me take you back to a year ago. What's your recollection of hearing um, about the case that that came from Westchester? Well, the first thing is to say that back in, uh, in back in January, we had our first conversation about this. And, you know, if you know, if I knew then what I knew now, it was like, you know, talking about going to college in late January before I ever got there and trying to estimate what we would do. We had a case in February that we weren't sure. A person traveled back to Westchester from China and was isolated. Uh, and we were involved in that one case. And the person turned out not to have the disease. And so our scale in our mind, when we heard about the first case, the first case actually might have been in Manhattan. And then we had the, the Neurochelle case a day or two later, as I recall. And we were thinking in very small numbers, Tim. We thought we were going to deal with 10, 15 cases. The president said there's only 15 cases. They'll be done in a week. So we figured, well, if we get this, we could get 15, maybe 20 cases. We had no idea when this thing morphed from 1 to 100 to 1,000 in that first you know, X number of days what was involved. And, um, and that probably is the first strong recollection that I have, which would be, you know, seeing the first case and then seeing testing coming and saying, hey, we had 30 cases. Hey, we have more cases in New York City. Westchester is one fraction, one eighth of New York City. And for us to have the most number of cases in the state, it really set us back. It was a rapid increase, but it basically told us this is a highly contagious disease. You can hear that it's highly contagious and it's over in Wuhan, China, or you can see it jump like uh, like a house just getting, you know, burning a flame. You know, you have like a little fire, the next thing you know, the whole house is engaged. That's how it struck us. Within days, we went from, you know, the index patient to, you know, literally a thousand cases. But but I will say you acted quickly. And I will say that that afternoon on the 3rd, um, you know, you started talking about, and obviously the state was involved in, in terms of the tracing, and the tracing led to schools in New York City and Westchester and the temple. And uh, there, there was quickly a circle drawn around uh, a quadrant in, uh, that's probably not the best way to put it, but there was a circle drawn around the community in New Rochelle that, that you were hyper-focused on. And that's a strategy that, that was employed coast-to-coast uh, coast after that. Well, it was interesting because uh, I was on the phone almost immediately with the mayor of New Rochelle, Noam Bramson, who's a good friend of mine. We're, you know, uh, friends outside of um, our responsibilities. And we talked immediately, and we talked immediately about how we would mesh the two governmental structures. Uh, He had capacity within his city to do certain things that we wouldn't have, but we had the health department. Uh, the county health department, and that, and which happened to have a major base in New Rochelle. We had spread around the county in a couple of different cities. One of them happens to be New Rochelle. So we were talking immediately. And it wasn't that, uh, even, as, even as the number of cases ballooned, we were in dialogue about it. So we were already starting to strategize. And in fairness, uh, you know, we were in touch with the governor fairly quickly. And, and he was engaged. I think we saw him within the first few days, within the first week, certainly. And he came down to Westchester, and we had a meeting uh, with with relevant groups in the New Rochelle area. Some of it started with that religious community that the index patient had interacted with. Um, but again, you know, you, we didn't have a clear, you know, we didn't have a clear direction that everybody had to wear a mask. That was not clear to us in the first week. It was, uh, you know, we understood social distancing and sanitization. We had not yet put into effect the kind of network that could get us PPE 
hand sanitizing on a frequent basis. It took us about a week to 10 days to really get rolling on that. And um, so we were we were learning as we went along and we were learning fast because the, the amount of infection every time, you know, we're hearing the numbers of how many positives came, the numbers like jumped up, you know, dramatically. What, what from a crisis management point of view, and you're a businessman before politics, what have you learned? What 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 lessons did you walk away from this year with? Well, I think the the the, the thing, and I, I gained this from my business experience, and also some of the people uh, on my executive team, Joan McDonald, who is our director of operations, who had previously been the state commissioner of the transportation department, and Emily Saltzman, who also had state experience before, they brought this to the table, is to react quickly. Government in general moves slowly. Government moves deliberately, sometimes properly when you're making a policy decision. But the one thing I know from business is when when, uh, circumstances change, when there's something happening in the marketplace, you discuss it immediately and you try to identify a strategy immediately because if you don't, events can overtake you very quickly. Now, events did move much faster than we did. But but had we delayed, had we done things like a week or two later, had we worried about, well, how are we going to give you an example? How are we going to fund testing all these people? We didn't know how we were going to fund our health department doing the testing. We just said, we got to do it. We got to get these folks out in the field. Do we have a team of people? Yes, we do. Our professionals were able to get some nurses who could go out in the field and start testing. And we just did it. We didn't know where the money was coming from. Ultimately, we got some Corona Care, uh, Corona uh, Cares Act funding, which, which covered us. And financially, we wound up before the year was over being okay. But government might normally wait and slow and talk about it. We have all our ducks lined up. Businesses will tell you, move quickly and deal with it quickly. And, and we had the advantage of the willingness because of the people who had managerial experience in some way, shape, or form to understand we had to move fast. When, when you look back on the year, uh, I, I suspect there are a number of highs and a number of lows. What, what do you recall? What, what plays out on, on your mosaic? Well, I think you know, the first thing that, that, I have to, that I have to grasp is when I lost the first person that I knew to COVID. It happened fairly early on. Gentleman's name was Glenn Belito. He was an Eastchester town councilman, and uh, so I knew him through his elective career. We also had the same dentist. <laughs> if you want an example of something ridiculous, I met him years ago when we sat in the dentist office. We started chit chatting, and he was uh, and he was in one industry, I was in another. So we got to know each other. Glenn is a Republican. I'm a Democrat. So we, you know, politically, we don't oh, oh, we did not always agree on certain policies, but we liked each other. And I had heard that he had gotten uh, he had gotten the virus on it like a Tuesday and on a Thursday he was sick and he was gone on Monday and that hit me like a ton of bricks he's a couple of years younger than me we're both in our 60s um, and you know well, you're 60s you know you know you're getting old but you don't feel like you're absolutely right there yet you know that's coming maybe next 10 but when I had heard from his wife that he was gone he had died and, and I had seen him over the Christmas holidays at a community event in, in Eastchester, it hit me like this is this is this is really what everything I see on television is. This is something that can and will kill people, and not just folks who are 85 years old who have you know serious comorbidities. This is somebody I knew, uh, you know, reasonably vigorous, and uh, and so I say, Tim, that really hit me like a punch. And then I also think um, you know we've had some ceremonies, and I want to credit Catherine Chaffee. She really was the first person. I'm very happy to credit people on my team for having the ideas. I, I absolutely do not have every idea that comes out of my administration. My my talent is to hire good people, listen to them, and then follow direction. But 
she she knew and then it, it connected with me that we needed to honor these people that we had lost. That's what we're doing tomorrow. And that's what we did uh, when we started Ribbons of Remembrances, because with all of the talk about the virus, what, what the former president was doing out of Washington and PPE and emergency services, there's a human element to this. People that we knew that somebody loved, the, every one of these people was somebody's father, mother, sister, co-worker, friend from down the block, childhood friend. And, and that emotion is why we shut the society down. That emotion is why we took extra precautions, because people we loved could die. And some way in the governmental response to this, in the beginning, nationally, there was no sense of that. There was no sense of the humanity of this. It was being treated like, well, you know, this is a problem. It was caused by China, and, it's, and uh, you know, it's going to be over soon, and everything's going to be fine. Wait a minute. Human beings that we know are dying. So that's the downside of it. The upside of it, <clears throat> I think, uh, was watching people in, in jobs who otherwise, you know, they did everyday yeoman's work. The people in our emergency services department that all of a sudden rose to the occasion to move PPE that came in and they reboxed it. They worked late at night so that it could be delivered to a, a hospital or a nursing home or a facility. The, the nurses and the doctors in our health department, Tim, they were, they were amazing to me. They'd work double shifts. You could see how tired they were. And they, too, were afraid that they were going to be subject to the virus. You know, they had the shields on and the masks, but you knew that they were dealing with, you know, testing people at the outset who, who, ha who had the virus. And yet they, they persevered through their job. And you step back and you say, you know, you talk about government, you think about elected officials, and you think about people whose names we know. You don't know the people working in the emergency services department, and you don't know the, the nurses working in the public health department. But clearly they became the heroes of this story and you saw something inside of people, average people working for government who rose to an occasion. And it was it that was the high point for me. The Westchester County Executive George Latimer. And while we do know a lot more about the virus than we did a year ago, we also have new mysteries and new concerns. We wanted to hear more about the COVID variants and how worried we should be. Our Peter Haskell got on the phone with one of the foremost experts on infectious diseases, Dr. Wafa El Sadr, a professor of epidemiology and medicine and director of ICAP at Columbia University here in New York. We started with the question of, how are we doing today? It, it has certainly been a tough year when it comes to COVID and um and um, and over and we've had certainly ups and downs both in the country overall, in the city, in New York City, as well as in the world overall. Um, I think we're now at a quite a fragile moment in time. Um, I think we're really facing um, a, a remarkable race between the virus and particularly the new variants of the virus, and also. Uh, with the vaccine. So it's a race between vaccination, how fast we can vaccinate people, and between the virus and how far we can go to decrease the transmission of the virus so that we can prevent the appearance of these new mutations, these new variants. There are some experts who say the variants are very dangerous and others who say they're not that bad. How concerned are you about these variants? The, the evolution or the development of mutations or what we call variants is expected. As the virus multiplies, what it happens is that the virus makes 
mistakes as it replicates, as it multiplies, and that gives rise to new mutations. And some of the mutations are not good for the virus itself, for example, that it can weaken the virus. But on the other hand, some of these mutations can create variants that are advantageous to the virus itself. So the concerns we have about any new variant are three. Number one is, is this going to make the virus more infectious, meaning more easily transmissible from one person to the next? Number two, is this new variant going to be more severe, more deadly? Is it going to cause more severe illness? Is it going to cause more hospitalizations? Is it going to cause more death? And then number three is, is this new variant going to be able to outsmart our vaccines or our treatments? Uh, so that's how I think of, of variants when they arise. And for some of the variants, we have already some information. Uh, like, for example, we have some information about the variant that was first identified in the United Kingdom that appears to be more easily transmitted from one person to the next. And we know that the variant that was identified first in South Africa, for example, is able to uh, appears to be able to uh, decrease the protective effects of some of our vaccines. So I think those are the concerns we have. Now, in terms of the new variants that we have been reported in the United States, we still don't have enough information in terms of the three elements that I mentioned before. We still don't know for sure whether these new, these new variants are more transmissible. We don't know if they cause more severe illness. And we still don't know for sure whether they're going to compromise our vaccines and our treatments. There's been talk about a New York variant. What, if anything, do we know about that? Well, all we know is that this variant appears to have been identified uh, as far back as in November and has been increasing over time in terms of increasing its presence. Um, uh, amongst the circulating viruses in the New York region. So that's what we know, more or less. We still don't know much about whether it's more infectious or transmissible. We don't know if it causes more severe illness, and we still don't know uh, the effect of our vaccines or the treatments uh, on this virus. So we have a lot of questions that remain in terms of what is the effect of this new variant that has been recently identified in New York area? Is the city, the state, and the country doing enough to identify and track these variants? I think that the, the city and the country overall um, is, is now mobilizing to be able to do more of the laboratory testing, what we call sequencing, the laboratory testing, to be able to identify new variants. So there's more capacity being built, laboratory capacity being built to be able to actually look at all the viruses uh, that are being identified and try to identify, you know, whether there's a new variant that is appearing and how far is this variant uh, uh, progressing in the community. Uh, all of this is now being put in place. So I'm optimistic that over the next several weeks or several months, we will have better data to be able to actually catch these variants as they appear, and very importantly, to be able to track whether a new variant, for example, takes over and becomes the dominant virus 
in our community. Dr. El Sader says there's no question that anyone who can get a shot today should. It's possible that this virus, this coronavirus, uh, may require um, us to get the annual vaccination, for example, like we do now for the influenza vaccine, the flu vaccine. That's possible. I think it's too early to tell. If we will be able, this is one of the most critical questions is, is that we'll be able to learn and uh, as we move along over the next several months is whether it's going to be necessary like once a year, for example, to, uh, to try to uh, essentially do a survey of the available variants that exist and then to develop a vaccine that's suited for whatever the circulating variant is at that moment in time and then vaccinate people based on these new uh, variants or the new vaccine. This is what's done every year for influenza. Every year for influenza, what the researchers do is that they identify what are the types of circulating influenza uh, viruses that are circulating in the community, and then they develop a new influenza vaccine every year based on the most likely viruses that are circulating. And I think that's the, the reason why we need to get a flu vaccine every year. The economy is starting to open and we're seeing restrictions loosened. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? I would say that at this, there's so many questions that remain unanswered. Uh, personally, I think that uh, there's concern that uh, in New York City, for example, while the numbers of new cases has been slowly decreasing, it's still quite substantial. We're still in New York City uh, uh, reporting about more than 3,500 cases per day. That's a large number of new cases. We still have uh, more than 7% positivity amongst people who get tested for this virus. Um, I think those those numbers, as well as the these new variants that have just been identified, for all these reasons, I think we should be cautious and not rush into easing some of the restrictions at this point in time. So if government officials called you and said, hey, what do you think, you would hold up? I would say, hold on, let's, let's wait till we're in a, better, in a better situation, and then we can ease with confidence. It goes without saying, people are tired of this. What do you tell them? How do you weigh all these competing factors, variants, vaccines, opening the economy, not opening the economy? What do we make of this? Well, what I tell people is that, you know, there is good news. I mean, I think that um, there should, there's every reason to be optimistic. And the reason for this is that we have vaccines that work, fantastic, and that are safe. That's wonderful. We are also seeing a slow a, a decrease, if not a slow decrease in the numbers of cases. That's also good news. So that's, these are important uh, pieces of good news that we have now. So we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we're not at the end of the tunnel. We still have to navigate through some stormy waters. We still have to navigate through this tunnel uh, and to be able to continue to try to decrease the numbers of cases as much as we can, because that's what really stops these new variants from arising. The only way to stop new variants from appearing is to stop this virus from going from one person to the next. So it's really important for individuals to be vaccinated, but it's also important for 
all the people around them to be vaccinated. And it's really important to have very low levels of transmission of the virus in the community. You've expressed the very logical case for a lot of these things. When you look forward, what's the biggest concern you have? I think my concern is that um, is that people are fatigued and are tired, and they may um, may may be eager to ease some of the protective measures they've been they've been taking. And uh, I just urge everybody to be patient. Uh, like I said, we see a light at the end of the tunnel, but we have to navigate our way through it very carefully and to hold on to some of these measures uh, as long as we can until we're in a safe until we're in a safe spot, until we have very high uptake, very high coverage with the vaccine in our communities, and also until we can bring down the transmission of the virus to very low levels. Uh, so I would say hold on. Uh, there's reason for optimism, uh, but it is premature now to imagine going back to normal. What's the likelihood of another surge? I think, again, there are lots of unknowns. I think the concern about the potential surge are based on, you know, what we learn about these new variants and what people do in terms of their day-to-day behaviors. For example, if we have a new variant of the virus that arises, that is more easily transmissible, that that jumps from one person to the next more easily, then that can potentially lead to a new surge. So that's why it's real, so critical to, to stop this from happening by continuing to wearing the masks and the distancing and so on. Dr. El Sadr, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you want to add? I, I think I, I've said it. I mean, I think the most 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 importantly is I I I um I I am optimistic. I'm optimistic because I like I said I see the um I see really the light at the end of the tunnel. I see how people have really worked so hard at um pr- at adhering to these protective practices. I see people doing it day in day out. Uh, I know that everybody's fatigued and tired. But I urge everyone to please just hold on until we get to a safe, until, until we get to safety. Three different stories this week from three different people. The commonality other than their years having been dominated by COVID. All three today are optimistic. Our thanks to our guests this week. Our best wishes to Lawrence Garbuz and his family. Thanks to Peter Haskell and Sean Adams for their reporting this week. In Depth is a weekly podcast taking the time to look into a story of importance in our community in a bigger way. Thanks for listening. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please get a shot and be safe. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. 
Penfield's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.